Well, I certainly am impressed to know that when we even announce that the subject for tonight is the judgment of God with respect to hell, that it is least something that people are respecting God's word enough to want to come out and find out what he says about that too. I want to once again stress to you, and I want to just lay everything right on the table right up front. The reason I wanted to speak on this is not because I want to speak on this. I was telling somebody uh, just uh, the night or the day before that when I preached on this topic one time, somebody out from church there, I think it was a lady in the church, said uh, to me one day, well, uh, uh, preacher, I, uh, thank you, I, I enjoyed that. And uh, my response to her was, I, I appreciate your comments, but I didn't enjoy giving it. And what it is, is some people seem to get the impression, the preacher's preaching on hell and he acts like, I'm, like he's happy that I'm going there. And that's not the impression we want to give. I want you all to understand right up front, the reason preachers preach on hell is number one, it's in the Bible, okay? And the second reason is, is because preachers, generally speaking, love the idea of the righteousness of God, His justice, the truth of God. And the reality is, is that we all have to meet God in the day of judgment to answer for the deeds done in the body. And there is nothing about that that anybody should look at and say, Oh no, God's like some angry Egyptian taskmaster just waiting to get me. Aha, I caught you, now I'm going to get you. That's not the attitude. Not at all. Do I have any pleasure, God says, that the wicked should perish? Not at all. But I'm willing that all should come under repentance. This is the attitude of God. Now, there's something else. Like I said, I just want to get it all right out on the table. I just want us to really know where I'm coming from. I don't want anybody to go out from this service and have a false impression of what Tim McHenry is trying to teach from the Bible about the subject of hell. If you look at the whole general thing, and then you look at the audience we have tonight, I'm not under any kind of impression that most of you all are not ready for the judgment. I know that I am, in a sense, preaching to the choir. Y'all know what I mean by that, don't you? Y'all understand that. However, do I really think that every single soul here is going to heaven? I don't know. If tonight I ask you, right now, directly, I don't want you, I'm not going to embarrass you, but if I wanted a show of hands, and if I could stop and ask each one of you by name in a conversation, are you going to heaven? If Jesus comes back right now, are you sure he's going to take you on to heaven? Now, you've got to come to grips with that. And if everybody in here is going to tell me either I'm not old enough yet to understand what you're asking me or, yeah, I'm headed there, then praise God, let's get ready for tomorrow night, right? That's great. I don't want to say that that's not the case. But also, I'm not under any illusions. The Bible says that we know that we know him and that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. It could be that there is somebody here who has some inward sin that others may not know about, but you know that it has interfered with your faith in God and that you have slid back into the ways of the devil. It could be the case that there's someone here tonight that has not yet obeyed the gospel. And I don't want you to be under any illusions. This is not a sermon about hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. But you have to do those things. It's just that this isn't a sermon detailing each part of gospel obedience. When I say obey the gospel, you know what I'm talking about. 
And if you don't, we'd love to study the Bible with you. But when I say God must be obeyed, I mean absolutely. And if you haven't done that, you don't need to have yourself under any false illusion. You're not headed to heaven. Inasmuch as the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, then that means every single person would be automatically saved if you didn't have to obey the gospel because the grace of God has appeared to all men. Jesus gave himself for all people. Right, church? Yeah, this means yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know he did. He loves all of us. When he took my sins on that cross, the only thing God's waiting for is for Tim McHenry to recognize that, for me to appreciate that. The appreciation is in our obedience under the gospel. You don't earn it. You just appreciate what God has done for you. So I just wanted to say up front, everybody here says, look, I'm ready. I'm going to heaven. Then this sermon is to motivate you to evangelism, okay? That's what the sermon's for. Praise God, you're going to heaven. Get ready for tomorrow night. The reason I want to present this lesson tonight also is because I won't feel good about preaching what I'm going to preach on tomorrow night. If you expect me to lower the boom on you on the last night on Wednesday, you've come the wrong evening. Sometimes, you ever seen people and they don't think that they've heard good preaching unless somebody gets told? Oh, preacher, you sure told them tonight. You, oh, yeah, you, you really got them. That's not what every sermon is about. But there is a balance in Bible preaching. Matthew 25, verse 46. These shall go away unto everlasting punishment, Jesus says, talking about the disobedient, but the righteous unto eternal life. Now, if I preach tonight on those who are disobedient, then I am allowed to preach. I have earned the right to preach tomorrow night on the eternal life and the nature of it that God details in the Scripture, haven't I? I can do that without ha having any thought in my head, well, Tim, maybe you're not telling them what you need to tell them. I will have given you the whole counsel of God. And I can do that without any kind of feeling on my conscience. So come tomorrow night and hear what we have to say about heaven. That's not tonight's sermon. Now, I said before, I said, hey, let's just get it all right out on the table. I have one more matter before I get into the Bible verses. Now, I know I've already given you some, but this is all just introductory stuff. Before I get to that, let's just put it down there one more because these are the thoughts in the back of people's heads. These are the things that they ask me about when they get in private. These are the things that cause people to leave in a huff and never want to come back to hear another gospel sermon because they never have this cleared up in their mind. Here's little sweet grandma. Tim, you tell me whether little sweet grandma is going to hell or not. How dare you preach that she would do that? She was the sweetest thing, and it's just an awful thought to think that you'd say that she's going to hell. Now, let's just get it right out in the open. That's what bothers people, doesn't it? Well, Tim, I can't obey the gospel. If I did, what does that say about what I believe concerning little sweet grandma? Why, to, to the best of my knowledge, she never obeyed the gospel. Now, let's stop right here for a moment. How many people in the Bible, the apostles, the people in the church, you don't read about any of them worrying about things that they don't affect and things that don't have to do with them? Now, is little sweet grandma still with us? I'd like to talk to her. No, she passed on long ago. My friend, I didn't know your little sweet grandma. Is it fair for you to ask me about her? That's not fair, is it? I didn't know her. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, but, uh, but what I'm telling you, she was this saying, she was that. So you say. 
and you ought to know better than me. So you tell me instead of me trying to tell you. Exactly what do you expect me to say about little sweet grandma? Here's the fact of the matter. Everybody, dead or alive, if you have already passed on, nobody in the Bible does it write about how that they worried about people that have already passed on. You don't see the apostles wasting their life away, moaning and groaning about what Judas did, do you? They just moved on. You don't see the apostle Paul worried to death about the rest of his ministry and work because uh, you have uh, like a Diotrephes or you've got um, uh, Demas uh, who says, well, I'm not going to follow after your way anymore, you know, and you leave the work. He doesn't even worry about that. It's not that he's happy about it, but he's not going to let it rule his life because Paul was not Demas or Diotrephes, because the apostles were not Judas. You live your own life and you answer to God yourself. Now having said that, I want everybody to be absolutely clear as to what the Bible teaches and what I'm telling you on this. There are only two places. There is heaven and there's hell. The least degree of heaven is nothing less than eternal fellowship and life with God. I mean the little corner room in heaven. It's nothing less than eternal life and fellowship with God. The least degree of hell is nothing less than eternal separation from God. That's exactly what it is. Now, somebody says, why do you say the least degree? People confuse what Bible teaches on this. I can't stand it. You're telling me, if, oh, if I do what you say, little sweet grandma is lost. My friend, you can't do anything to save or condemn little sweet grandma. If she's already gone, she's already gone. There's nothing you can do there that is going to affect that. Why, why do you think we need to have her in the picture? The fact is, though, is that you describe her as little sweet grandma. Yeah, she's a little sweet grandma. All right, let's put her side by side. Here you've got little sweet grandma, and over here you've got Osama bin Laden, Hitler, Stalin, Attila the Hun, people like that, okay? And you, you put them side by side. Now, what does the Bible say about people? Either you've obeyed the gospel or you haven't. And the fact is, though, is that the Bible teaches, he who knew to do his master's will and did not do it shall be beaten with many stripes. My friend, do you get the importance of that? you understand what I'm saying? I'm not making up something that's not right there. Luke 12, 47 and 48. You can look it up yourself. He who did not know to do his master's will and didn't do it, shall be beaten with few stripes. The God of all the earth will judge the world righteously. There's one heaven and one hell, but what God does with a soul is completely fair. We don't serve a God that doesn't understand all the intricacies of life. We don't serve a God that doesn't know you personally and where you're coming from. God says there are those who commit the greater sin and shall receive the greater condemnation. Matthew chapter 23. The Bible says there are those who shall be eaten with many stripes and some with few stripes. Somebody says, well, you're lumping her right in there with Osama bin Laden. No, I'm not. God will judge him, God will judge her, God will judge you, and God will judge me. And the fact is, is that the judge of all the earth, like Abraham said, shall do right. Every man shall go unto the judgment of God and be judged according to the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And we'll just let the Lord deal with that, won't we?
That's the best way to do it. The only thing left is for the living to take it to heart. The only thing left is for all of us who know and believe that the Creator has a day planned in which He will judge your soul for us to prepare our hearts in honesty before God and do His will before it's everlastingly too late. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Their foot shall slide in due time. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. There, that is, the disobedient, the wicked, those who will not listen to God. You can look in the context of the passage if you'd like, but I'm not going to delve into that with you tonight. The statement is plain enough. Their foot shall slide in due time. Picture it, if you will, for a moment. I'm up here on the precipice. I am standing at the edge. I am representation of the wicked, those of the world, those who simply will not obey God when the gospel is given to them. Their foot shall slide in due time. There it goes. There they go. Down into the pit, God says. And there is no recovery for them. There are three implications that I would like for us to draw from this passage. Number one, this passage implies that they were always exposed to sudden and unexpected destruction. As he that walks on slippery ground is all of a sudden and at any moment liable to fall, they're standing right there at the edge. Their foot shall slide and then the supports are gone. And down they go. Psalm chapter 73 and verses 18 and 19 expresses the very same thought. Surely you did set them in slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. How are they, the disobedient, the wicked, how are they brought into desolation as in a moment? It's a sudden thing. Nobody says, oh yeah, I've got it. Since Jesus isn't coming back for a week, then i got a week to party. Doesn't work that way. At a day and hour that you know not, the Son of Man cometh. Therefore, what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. You don't know. In fact, let me put it to you this way. Everybody here would tell me you believe Jesus Christ is coming. He's coming for your soul. Every one of you. Now, let me ask you this, and I will ask for a show of hands on this. I'm not asking you if you believe He's coming. I'm saying how many of you have figured it out, you've looked into it, and you believe He's coming tonight. Well, I don't see any hands. Did you understand what I'm asking? He's coming tonight, I said. Nobody shows me. Randy, not a one of them showed me their hands. So he, you're not saying he's coming tonight. And what does God say? At a day and hour that they know not. When is Jesus coming? On a night just like this one, because you're not expecting it. You ever thought about that? He says that's exactly when it's going to be. As in the day of Noah. People were marrying and giving in marriage. Some are out in the field doing their thing. People are all about going around in their lives. You do whatever it is you do, and nobody's thinking, oh yeah, tonight is the night. No. And then sudden and unexpected destruction come upon them. So it says in the book of Psalms, so it teaches in Deuteronomy 32 in verse 35. The second implication of Deuteronomy 32, 35, their foot shall slide in due time is that they are liable to fall of themselves. Picture, if you will, I am the wicked. I am at the precipice. I have not obeyed God. He has given me His gospel, but I'm stubborn. I don't want to do it. 
I am at the edge of the pit. There is no guarantee that I'm going to live one more day. And here I am ready for my foot to slide and the only thing that's holding me up is God is holding me by the scruff of my neck. And he is, if you will, as much as heaven can do so, begging me, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm not going to let you go yet. You've heard the gospel. I want you to hear it again. Don't do it. You're headed off. No, come back here. You need to hear it again. Won't you listen? Won't you pay attention to my son Jesus? Won't you respect my son? They will reverence my son, God said in the Bible. And he's waiting on people still to do that. Won't you listen? You're standing at the edge. Where do you think you're going? Down there is the pit of destruction. It is eternal separation from me. You're headed in that direction. God keeps pulling you back. He says, don't do it. I'm going to hold you. I'm not going to let you go yet. You'll leave when I say you can leave. The implication of Deuteronomy 32:35 is that when you fall, you're going to fall of yourself. Nobody made you. You were headed that way. You go exactly where you choose to go in life. And every soul that ends up in hell chose to go to hell. Whether they realized it or not, they were headed down that path. And God was holding them back the whole time. The third implication of Deuteronomy 32:35: their foot shall slide in due time is that the reason that they're not already fallen is not that they themselves don't want to, not that they themselves can see their future. The reason they haven't already fallen is that God's appointed time has not yet come. It is said their foot shall slide when? In due time. God's getting ready, therefore, for his appointed day, isn't he? You're on slippery places. God says you're ready to go. At any time, you could die, and that time could be tonight. We don't say that to scare little children. We don't do that in order to say that God is some sadistic taskmaster. We say it in order to make this summary statement. And this statement is the one I'll be proving for the rest of this evening. The observation that I now insist upon is that there is nothing that keeps disobedient people out of hell at any moment Right now, there is nothing that keeps you, if you're not ready to meet God, my friend, out of hell at any moment but the mercy of God. The mercy of God. By the mercy of God, I mean His grace in the sense of withholding punishment, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty. God can cause everything to end whenever He gets ready. The Lord is under no obligation whatsoever to cause everything to continue even a moment longer. God is under no obligation to keep a hold of you by the scruff of your neck. God is under no obligation to keep you from sliding on down. God has made no promise whatsoever. And so he tells us and teaches us by implication that there is nothing that keeps wicked men out of hell at any moment but his mercy. I want to prove this statement. And I want to drive the point home in the best way that I can according to Scripture in our remaining time. I know that there's nothing that keeps disobedient people out of hell at any moment, even right now, but the mercy of God because, number one, there is no lack of power with God to, for people to stay out of hell. In other words, if God rises up and He says, it's time for my judgment, who's going to stand up and say, no, not yet, God? Why, there's a bunch of people out here that aren't ready. Why, all the people in the world are lifting up their hands and saying, no, no, no. Oh, you mean 
that little bitty speck of dust on that little bitty blob of water out in the expanse that I made and, and, and a bunch of little twiggles on that little bitty speck of dust are kind of waving something and saying no, no, no and you think that's going to stop me? God is bigger than that, ladies and gentlemen. He rules in the kingdom of men and whatsoever he wills shall be done. Daniel 4, verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. Among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain God's hand. No one can say to God, what have you done? The judge of all the earth shall do right. The strongest have no power to resist him. Neither can anyone deliver out of the hand of God. He's not only able to cast wicked men into hell, he can easily do it. In other words, it is by his will, it is by his word, it is the righteousness of God. Right now we live in the day of mercy. Right now God is waiting upon you. Right now the blood of Jesus Christ flows toward you. It invites you to come unto him and be a part of his body so that you might be enlivened and born again. And yet if you do not choose that way, God in his righteousness on that day of visitation will visit your soul not in mercy, but in justice. It is the nature of God. The second thing that proves the statement that there's nothing that keeps disobedient people out of hell but the mercy of God is that every disobedient person deserves to be cast into hell. God has not put us under any obligation of something that we cannot do. Accept my grace, he says. Is that too difficult? The Lord didn't require that you climb the highest mountain. He never told you you've got to be some special person. You've got to take a bunch of fancy courses. He never said that you've got to be as smart as some of the smartest people in the world or you've got to be as rich as some of the richest people in the world. He never said you've got to have a position of authority. God doesn't look upon people that way. The only thing he asks of you is that you humble yourself. He says, I gave my son. My son, does that not mean anything to you? And all I ask of you is to say, I believe that. I appreciate that, God. I humble myself before you. Where can I be born again? Where can I show that I'm starting a new life? And he says, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And people stubbornly refuse. God pleads with his children. He says, come back to me. You were serving me at one time. You know of the powers of the age to come. You know of the heavenly gift and the salvation that was in your hands. And you'll walk away from me. Come back. Come back and be restored. It's not too late. But instead, like the prodigal son living out there among the swine, we say not today. Maybe one more day of living out there in the world. One more day of disrespecting God and of following my own way instead of his way. And you think that God is obligated to let this world last any longer? You think that God says, well, they deserve another chance? God has given chances. He has not placed himself under any obligation. Every person that goes down unto hell deserves to go there. Luke chapter 13, verse 7. Cut it down. Why does it cumber the ground? What does he say that about? Our Lord said that about those that would not serve God and would not produce any spiritual fruit. The third proof of the statement that there is nothing that keeps wicked men out of hell at any moment is that God is already punishing or reserving some for judgment that he has the same anger for the disobedient people who are still living on the earth today. By that I mean some have already passed from this life. 
And the Bible says that there are some who are reserved for torment, right? In the book, of, read First and Second Peter. It says in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 23, ye are from beneath. He said that to living people. They were serving the way of Satan, and they were bound to serve the way of Satan so long as they made up their mind they would be stubborn against God. There is no consolation by being at ease. There is no consolation by saying, I live in comfort. There's no way to buy insurance against hell. It is simply there, and it is waiting. Even though people are physically alive, they are like the evil women that are spoken of in the New Testament, dead while they live. Proof number four, that there's nothing that keeps evil people out of hell at any time but the mercy of God is that God is at work right now restraining the evil influences in the world that would overtake the whole world if people would just let down their guard a little bit or if God was not actively working to subdue the evil. Now you want to know how bad it gets? Go with me over in your Bibles for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to show you something. Ephesians 4. There's a lady in the church at Mount Gilead. And she's a widow lady, lives there with her daughter. Both, uh, I guess the person thought both of them had gone. Phyllis was gone. And somebody came into the house to steal the purses. How, how did they know that she was going to be gone? Obviously, you case out a place like that, don't you? You're looking for it. Evil people are lurking everywhere. They're all over the place waiting to do something bad. And people in the church, for some reason, many times don't see how the world is. My son, bless his heart, has such a tender disposition, a compassionate heart. And it just about broke that heart when he was working for Walmart. I can tell you now because he's not doing that for them anymore. He's still working with them, but he's not doing that. He was an asset protection manager or associate. And that means he's the guy that goes around and looks like he's a regular customer. He's not. He's checking to make sure you're not taking anything off the shelf you ought not to be taking. It would break his heart. Dad, I went to school with that fella. He's walking around the store. I know what he's doing. They trained me to look for this. Why would he do that? Why is he doing that? He's stealing from us. Does he not know how bad stealing is? Does he not know it's just one of the basic things that evil people do? Dad, I saw this guy there. I saw this little old lady. She didn't even need it. She's walking around. She's stealing from Walmart. She wants to lose her soul when she doesn't even need it by stealing a $20 blouse and trying to sneak it outside the store. And I drag her in the back and make her give us a $400 check to avoid the embarrassment of dragging her off to court. How do people get that way? And it wasn't a few. You know how cheap stuff would be in the store if they weren't stealing them blind? It's happening all over the place. Now look here in the Bible. That's why I brought you to Ephesians 4. And this is one sin, ladies and gentlemen. One sin, and that's stealing. In verse 28, he says in Ephesians 4, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands that which is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. The disposition of heart that says, I'm not living for myself, I'm living for my fellow man, I'm living to give, I'm living to con contribute something. 
that attitude is not with a lot of people. And this is with respect to one sin. And so what do they do? They give place to the devil. Dad, I went to school with that fellow. He's a nice guy. You could go fishing with him. You could play ball with him. Why, he was, he was great to be around. He talks like a regular guy. I know, son, but he's a thief. He's a thief. It's not your job to have mercy on him. He steals stuff. He's given place to the devil. Back up one verse to verse 27. Neither give place to the devil. What have they done? They've taken one spot in their life. Oh, yeah, he may be a great guy. Maybe he would turn right around and give you what he's stolen, but he still stole it. Maybe it is that he is good in so many different ways, but he has given himself over to the devil in that part of his soul, and that will condemn his soul. Back up one more verse. How do you prevent that? If you look there in verse 26, it says, Be angry and do not sin in verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. How many people live frustrated lives? Lives that are pent up in all kinds of anger and thoughts of, if not vengeance, then at least of recrimination and of, of hatefulness. They're always thinking about how mean somebody in the church was toward them at some point. Or they're always considering how that I'm just as good as this other person and making comparison of themselves with others. They're going through life and maybe they're good in so many different ways, but they've given place to the devil for one sin. Maybe it's not stealing. Maybe it's something else. But they've given place to the devil somewhere in their life. And they get to judgment and they expect God just to overlook it. Well, I'm just, uh, I forget that. Yeah, we'll have a thief in heaven. And God says, no, there's not going to be a thief in heaven. Well, yeah, but he's been helpful to his neighbor. Why, he'd do more for you than a lot of people in the church were. And God says, why are you worried about that person over in the church? Judgment shall begin first in the house of God. I'll take care of that fellow if he wasn't what he's supposed to be. The fact of the matter is, is that I know what you are. And you're a thief and you're not getting in. God knows the hearts of men. He is restraining the evil upon the face of this earth. If you let it go, it would be all over the place. If it weren't for AIDS, you think the scourge of homosexuality and the things in society that they're using to break down the family is bad now. What if you didn't have that? I'm not saying it's not a legitimate disease. I'm saying that people naturally suffer and cause others to suffer when they pursue sinful lifestyles. If everybody stayed perfectly healthy when they abused drugs, think of how many people out there would be abusing drugs, waste their whole life away in a hog and a phase on marijuana and things a whole lot worse than that. Why not? You know they would if God didn't show them that the way of the transgressor is hard. This is against you. Don't be doing that. God is restraining them. And when God finally one day lets those restraints go, then he says, that's it. I've had enough. It's the end. Isaiah chapter 52, 57, excuse me. Isaiah 57, verse 20. The wicked are like a troubled sea which cannot rest. The waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. You will never know peace in your soul until you quit giving place to the devil. So God is waiting for his appointed time, the time to judge your soul. And mine. Proof number five, that there is nothing that keeps disobedient people out of hell at any moment, 
is that there is no security to wicked people that they don't see the end of their life coming. One of the sadder visits I've had in the years of preaching is I was off in Scottsville, Kentucky at the time. I remember going over to an old man's house and walking in there into his little dark bedroom. There he is laying on the bed, not many days probably to live. I don't know that he had any connection with godliness much at all. He's half out of it. And there's a wad of cash like you wouldn't believe half spilled out of his pocket and him laying there on his deathbed. You leave a house like that, how sad is that? Now God will do whatever he wanted to do with that poor soul. But all I know is is that everything that I saw just made me that much sadder. What did he expect? Was he going to buy some kind of insurance that was going to get him out of the trouble of meeting God? Was he going to discover some magic elixir that's going to keep you alive for two centuries instead of one? What good would that do you anyway? Was he going to find some way to sneak in the back door to serve time in purgatory, to wait out all the bad stuff he had done in life and how that he had always kept it to himself instead of being free and liberal with others? Exactly what was he planning on? I don't know. I don't know what plans people make, but nobody can make a plan to get out of the judgment of God. There's no way to do it. When God's judgment comes, man's hand cannot be strong. There is absolutely no security for you because you don't see it coming because you think, well, I'll make plans against all of that. You don't make any plans against that. The judgment of God comes, it comes suddenly, and there is no way to get out of it. There is no, and this is number six, there's no protection in being careful. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 16, how does the wise man die? He dies just like the fool. Everybody dies. Therefore, everybody in their soul meets their creator. Number seven, there is no way for the disobedient to make a plan for getting out of the judgment of God. Well, that televangelist came on the TV and he said if I'd just put my hand on that TV and just say a real earnest prayer that that would do it, preacher. I don't find that in God's will for man. You made your own plan. Nobody can make a plan for getting out of God's plan. If you haven't given enough thought to your obedience that you didn't try anything, that's even worse. But there is no way that you can have a plan for getting out of the condemnation of God that is apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ according to the obedience to the gospel where the Bible describes it as obeying from the heart that form of doctrine. Romans chapter 6 verse 17. The form of doctrine is for you to turn from all your sin and for you to be buried in the likeness of his death and raised in newness of life. My friend, if you have not done that, there is no promise from God. He has not obligated himself at all by any promise to keep you out of hell. That really brings me to my last thing. I want to make some applications of these points. I want us to understand just exactly what it is that people are facing in the judgment of God, and this is the conclusion. After this, the lesson is yours. I want you to notice that I have not done what I have heard sometimes done from the pulpit in the past. 
I have heard some preachers describe the judgment of God in hell and they try to give all of these physical descriptions. And I know that there is some of that in the Bible. Uh, where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not, right? Is that what you were expecting when I was preaching on hell? It's not what I'm preaching on, is it? That's because that's as far as the Bible takes it, my friend. I've listened to preachers before and they want to describe how it would be like for hot lava to be poured down your throat and things like that. I'm not getting into that. I'm not here to scare children. I'm here to address the adult mind and let you know that the very real spirit that is within you right now that animates your mind, that causes your body to do things and makes you either accept or reject the gospel, that your spirit, when it's separated from this body, shall go back to meet God. And on that day, what will you do with your spirit? Will you try to hide from God? You can't hide from Him. The application of this lesson is, number one, it is the wrath of God we're talking about. You don't have anywhere you can go. You can't hide under the rocks as is described also in Scripture. It won't work that way. You can't say, well, I'm going to fly to the corner of some spiritual place or somewhere in outer space. The elements shall burn with fervent heat and the works uh, and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. There's no place to go. There's no way to get out of the judgment of God. Listen to the words of the New Testament, Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. Jesus the Christ. I say unto you, my friends, don't be afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him after who he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him, Jesus says. That's the one you have to contend with. It is the fierceness of the wrath of God that we have to contend with. There are some passages in the Old Testament and in the final imagery of the book of Revelation which should cause every single soul to tremble. Before I read these passages to you, which is the end of the lesson, I want to talk to you about that for a moment. When Moses, who was a good man, real good man, wasn't he? The meekest man on the face of this earth. When he appeared before God, the Bible says, Moses responded, I exceedingly quake and tremble. Now, did Moses think he was lost? No. If Moses is in a right relationship with God, then why was he like that? He was in the presence of the judge of all souls. It's not that you think you're lost. It's not that you have the wrong impression of what God wants. He wants you to be saved. But my friend, if you do not have a concept of the immenseness of your Creator, of you appearing before Him when all He wanted you to do was to love His Son that He gave for you, when all He wanted you to do was to give those sweet words out of your mouth, I believe Jesus Christ is God's Son. And for a moment's embarrassment, for a moment of irrational thinking, you just let yourself say, no, 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 maybe next time, or I, I, no, I'm, I'm just kind of afraid of where that would take me. And you just forget the whole thing. God's not going to overlook that. When godly people appeared before the Lord, they knew He would do right by them, but they also knew who they were in the presence of. I exceedingly quake and tremble, He said. Why do we preach on hell? 
Not because we want anybody to go there, but because the righteousness of the just judge of heaven demands that we show there is a day coming in which God will set everything right. Nobody ever got away with doing anything wrong. Nobody ever failed to be recognized for doing what was good and right. God remembers everything, doesn't he? Every hair on your head, every good deed done, every cup of cold water given. Isn't that right? Everything. God knows it. He won't forget you, but he also will not forget that. You did that, and you never let the blood of my son wash you clean from that. Why did you not think you needed my son there is one that we answer to. And the message of the Lord Jesus the Christ is, is that He is the only Savior. Except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. Consider, ladies and gentlemen, these incredible... I mean, I don't really know what to think of them. Uh, the, the verses are just exceedingly disturbing in describing the fierceness of the wrath of God. And I'm going to have to give them in rapid order. But like I said before, if you want to study on this in the future, if for some reason, because of the speed with which I give them, you're not convinced, you go back and look at this by checking out uh, the church website I gave you all before, or I can give you this material myself if you'd like. Isaiah 59, verse 18. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, the fierceness of the wrath of God. Isaiah 66, verse 15. Behold, the Lord will come with fire, with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. And so in Revelation 19 and verse 15, treading out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. He's just not going to have it. He will not allow wicked man to go any further. Ezekiel 8 and verse 18 Therefore I will also deal in fury. My eye will not spare. I will not have pity. Though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them, God says. Instead, Isaiah 63, verse 3, I will tread them in my anger. I will trample them in my fury. Their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. You say, if God is that angry at sin, why does he let this old world last? The Apostle Paul explained it in Romans chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? I'll tell you this. I don't want to be subject under the everlasting wrath of God. I don't want to store up my sins against the day of judgment so that everything bad I ever did comes crashing down upon my head and I have to remember for all of eternity what I could have been and could have done and never did do it. Instead, I want to cry out like the Apostle Paul. Thanks be unto God. Forgetting those things that are behind. I press on to the high mark of the calling of Jesus Christ. What have you done that you think you cannot be forgiven of? What is, what is it that's got into your life that makes you think you cannot obey the gospel tonight? You haven't done anything that bad that keeps you from God. 
the Apostle Paul was a murderer. Can y'all let that sink in for a moment? He held the garments and accomplished a murder. He held the garments of the people that were stoning that sweet and innocent man, Stephen. All he did was preach the truth. And Paul said, oh, you want to kill him with a stone? Here, let me hold your coat. And then they just killed him. And he was standing there and did nothing about it. He was breathing out threatenings and slaughter trying to stop the church of God itself. And God turned around and forgave him in his mercy. Today is a day of mercy. You haven't done anything like that. So surely you know God will forgive you. There is nothing that God cannot forgive. He's bigger than that. There is nothing that the day of wrath has in store for you that you cannot avoid by coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and letting His blood wash over you and cleanse you from every spiritual stain. He came for the very purpose of paying the price for our sins. And, and tonight, my friends, you can know that all of those sins have been cleansed and washed away. The judgment day is coming. But for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are going to be able to say, along with the Apostle John, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come. It's time. Let your righteousness be shown along with your mercy. Let your judgment day arrive. I'm ready. I've done what the Bible says. I've honored your Son. Let him receive me up into glory. God will not disappoint you. He will keep his word. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. God promises you that. If you have believed on the gospel, if you've been baptized into Christ, you've got the promise of God. Rejoice. You're headed to heaven. Tomorrow night is a breeze. It's a joy. But if you're not ready for God and for his judgment day, come to the Lord tonight. If you don't come to the Lord tonight, we pray so hard that God gives us one more night, but he's not promised us that. It's time right now. The invitation is extended to you. The day of God's wrath has been explained. His great judgment, both for the good and for the evil, has been set before us. Who can deny the Lord Jesus Christ and his merciful and good gift of salvation? He offers it to you. Won't you come to him as we stand and sing?